0: Qui est le poète Who is a Poet is a bilingual podcast in French and English. We reflect on the sacredness of this function and its essential mission for the collective with guest poets on the show. Poets from the past, present, and maybe future come for a visit to enlighten our perception of beauty, harmony, transcendence, and union. Their creative process and emotional journey into creation is also at the heart of our discussions. Welcome. My name is Muriel Moubengou, and I am a poet. A poet adds wonder, magic, and love all around her, no matter what. On March 21st, Julie Pellissier-Lush started something wonderful. She began recording poems and hosting online powwows to share beauty and harmony in the midst of a pandemic. Julie pelicie is a poet, and as such, she is multi-talented, a singer, songwriter, photographer, a mother, and the first Mi'kmaq Poet Laureate of Prince Edward Island in PEI history. She is the author of My Mi'kmaq Mother a story of motherly love and loss and a voyage into the world of the Mi'kmaq people. Qui est le Poet is honoured to have her. I'm so honoured to, to conduct this little interview with you. So what I wanted to ask you is, what was it for you growing up as a poet?
1: Growing up, I think I found myself more of an entertainer. My father was a United Church minister. So and it was just him and I. My mom passed away when I was three. Okay. So it was him and I, and we would get invited to his church families for suppers and things, because they'd say, Oh, poor Mr. Pellis here, he probably isn't cooking very much these days. So a lot of the times we would go to all these houses, farmhouses, house, you know, city houses and visit all these people. And I realized very soon that my role was to be that person who knew how to talk to the congregational members. Like, back in the day, it would have been, you know, what about that political leader? And then they'd be like, oh, my gosh, I know. And then I realized that I needed to extend that a little bit. Yeah. Dad had a bunch of old comedy records, listen to them and put them in my head and res- and be able to sit there and say, do you want to hear something funny? And then I would like literally spill off a whole comedy episode and entertain them. And of course, singing, I was always singing and doing a lot of those things. And then after a while, it became, of course, when you're a teenager and you're angry all the time, it became just a you to get rid of these feelings that sort of suffocate you as you're changing, and and I lived in a community where being indigenous wasn't that great, and okay. I had a very hard time being me there. Mm-hmm. It got to the point where I was saying, you know, well, I'm only half indigenous, and they're, like, well, you're a Heinz 57 then, and that became, you know, my nickname, and it was. And so all these feelings you still have and you'd still be trying to work out. So I started writing and first it was like sort of dark stories and then it got a little bit lighter. And then I think, I think when I was pregnant with my first boy yeah. was when this love started to come just out of nowhere and it filled my heart and it filled my writing. And it, it was, it wasn't even just love, it was hope. It was hope that, you know, tomorrow would be a better day. The next day, would be a better day. And like, because my dad was a minister, we moved like pretty much every two years. So yeah. go from one community to another community to another community. So you never really had those lifelong friends that most people have. You have people that you might write to a few times and then that's it. You drop off and you never see each other again. Yeah. I think my writing Went that way for quite a long time, and then in 2004, I got pregnant with my third child, and something hit me really intensely. Because when you're 17 or 18 and you're pregnant, you basically go in once, and they say you're good, you know, and then you you show up to have baby. When you're 34, and. Yeah. Pregnant, they like, oh, we need to get blood work Uh, because, you know, there's special things that could happen to the baby because of your age. And I had a feeling, I had a sense about what if I didn't make it? What if, you know, something happens, a complication happens, and this child is going to grow up like me and not knowing who I am? So I started writing a book. So that was the very first book that I wrote, and it was called My Mi'kmaq Mother. And it was stories that were told to me when I was little so that I could try to connect with my mom yeah. and sort of my experiences as far back as I could remember. And then I always, I put it in the beginning of the book that this is my memories to preserve who I am so that if anything should happen, it's there. And then that book was published in 2009. Beautiful. And after that, it was so weird because I write a lot, but then all of a sudden you're considered a writer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you're like, okay. And they said, well, you did that. What we need now is we need eight poems. We need you to go and research Mi'kmaq legends, yes. old stories from long, long ago, and make eight poems out of them. And I thought, okay, I can do that. And so I created eight poems, very long poems, very intense poems. Yes. Took those eight poems to and gave them to a screenwriter. Yes. And that screenwriter, she went and transformed them into a script. Oh beautiful. And me and a group of 13 indigenous young people created this show called Mi'kmaq Legends.
0: Oh, beautiful, magnificent.
1: And then But I always had my standalone poems because although I made them for the show, they were still mine. Yes. Which is something in hindsight, I'm very glad I had a few people that were in the business already and said, don't just sign off on everything. Don't just say, here's my work and it's done. Hold on to that. So I did. And then after that, I started with storytelling and I took my poems and created them into oral poetry reads. So I took those things that I created and I made them oral because my even though I am a poet and that's sort of where it comes from, my best thing is I love storytelling. <laughs> long, long ago, yeah, the best of times, there was, right? Yes, there's but magic I, in that, right? These words. I always say that poetry and storytelling where poetry is the apple pie that's in the oven cooking. And you open your book of poetry; those poems will always be there for you, like that apple pie. Yeah. Storytelling is like the smell of the cooking apple pie. Oh, I love that! Walk it. into the, the house, it. and it's like you know it's there. You don't know what it looks like or what it's going to taste like, but you know it's there. And when you do a story, it can change every time you. Yes. And it can adapt to whoever you're telling it to. That's how I sort of take it. So then after that, the PEI government had asked me about two years ago to become their poet laureate. Oh, beautiful. represent poetry all across the province and go and promote it and go and do storytelling. And the fact that since about 2010, I've been going to the schools and doing my storytelling already. Yes. And now I'm doing workshops about how to get other people to either go storytelling or poetry. And a lot of people are really shy when it comes to just opening up about themselves or about something that they feel strongly about. And just being able to say, you know, you are amazing and your story belongs to you and you can tell it however you want to. If I wanted to start this conversation with, I had a mother and a father and we lived happily ever after in this little tiny red dirt farmhouse, that could be the story that I live with. Yes. But I mean, there's there's so much, there has to be your own truth to it. And if that's what makes you happy and you move forward with it. So that's what I ended up doing. I ended up becoming the poet laureate, more so for the storytelling part, because yeah. that's I sort of shine but I needed to create things that were mine and then when this pandemic happened yes. I decided I think people need to be distracted I think people need to be entertained I think people need a minute where they're not thinking about an update every day where they're yeah. not thinking of their loved ones who they can't see or be near anymore for a while yes. and I I started creating it was like because I was trapped at home like everybody else and I had you know I have 5 children and wow, great and they were all here well except for my oldest son he has his own house just up the road but the rest of everybody was here and it seemed like you wake up in the morning and one or two of them would be hungry, so you'd cook and then you'd do the dishes. And then the other two would wake up and they'd be hungry and then you'd cook and you'd do the dishes. <laughs> and then another two would wake up and you'd cook and you do the dishes. Yeah. My my ding started going, Ah and if you weren't doing that, you'd do laundry. Because apparently even if you don't leave the house, you still have to change your clothes about <laughs> <like. laughs> I don't understand it, but it just seems like it's a thing. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's your story is so beautiful. And it resonates so much with my own. So I'm just going to tell you quickly what happened to me. I had this very depressing life. And I had two beautiful children. And they were the love of my life and the only people that would make me happy. So who would make me happy? So I had a collapse. I don't know exactly what triggered that collapse. Maybe, you know, all kinds of problems related to social life, professional life. And also being a woman alone with uh, two children. And so life gave me tough love. And I ended up in the north of France. I was living in Paris. And I ended up in the north of France, which is a very weird place to be when you're depressed because it's not going to help you. Mm -hmm. It's raining all the time. People drink like huge amounts of beer to cope with the absence of the sun, you know, natural light. And when I arrived there, it was so obvious to me that the universe was giving me a second chance to do something meaningful, something not meaningful for others. Meaningful for me, authentic. So what I did is, I, I wrote a poetry book back then when I was in, in when I was living in Paris in two thousand six. And what I did when I arrived in the north of France in two thousand fourteen is study philosophy and create this. We call it Le Temps du Conte, which is fairy tale time mm. for grown ups. And so I would channel, really, this was weird. I would channel stories. I didn't know where the stories came from, but they were just ready every Sunday. And people would come. We were in this beautiful place and people would come and listen to the stories I was telling. And it felt so right to tell stories. Of course, it felt right to, to write poems. It's beautiful. But the act of telling the poems, the stories and the poems, it's so so enlivening and it's enlivening for everyone, for the poet and for the people who are listening. This is just, just to tell you that there is this similar relationship to the written word and the spoken word at some point in the poet's life. And I think it has something to do maybe with the maturity and the level of maybe courage that we have within us, you know, to go out, simply go out and, and, and do your thing, you know, because when you write poetry, you're alone with your laptop, your notebook, your pen, and no one knows that you're writing poetry. But telling stories is like writing poetry live, you know, with people watching. And that feeling is just the most, I mean, it's, it's, it's exhilarating. (laughs) So yeah, and I felt that when you were talking about your experience. So thank you very much, because this is again a confirmation that we're going through the same experiences in different circumstances. This is wonderful. And I also wanted to ask you about the Mi'kmaq spirituality and mythology. How did it inspire your writing or your storytelling?
1: We are not a people that wrote down our stories. Yes all through storytelling. Long, long ago, we would sit in our lodges in the winter and the oldest person in the lodge would tell the story to the family okay. and would repeat every week there'd be a different story or every night there'd be a different story. Yes. And how our history got saved from generation to generation to generation. And I don't think, I think it was in like 1843, uh, a missionary came And he wrote down some of the stories of the Mi'kmaq from the oldest storytellers in the community all around the Atlantic region here. Yeah, That's where I started my journey. I started my journey to try to find some of these amazing stories so that I could learn them and understand them and share them. And his stories, because you know what they say, when you learn a language, your brain opens up, and you not only know their language, you are understanding how that group of people thinks and understands. Absolutely, absolutely. And Mi'kmaq is a very hard language for me to learn. I'm slowly learning it now, but I mean, for a Jesuit missionary to come, and it was his understanding of the words that he was learning, and he deciphered it into storytelling. His story, his version of the story. Now, when you talk to elders, they might have that same story, but it's a little bit different because it's from their viewpoint, from, from their emotions, from their history, from their knowledge of who told them the story. Yeah. And when I realized that a lot of our young people today don't have the same knowledge as I was giving myself. So I said, we need to share these stories because these stories, there's about seven different kinds of stories. Yeah. There's one kind that tells you how to be good to Mother Earth. And there's another kind of story that is like the trickster story. And I think every culture has that where yes. you don't do this. Yeah. Don't be the trickster. Don't be This person that gets into trouble because this is what will happen. Because we're also a people of non-interference. I actually grew up with that as well, where, you know, I go home and say to my dad, oh, I got into a fight with my friend at school. And what do I do? And instead of saying, you do this, this and this, he'd say, well, when I was a young boy, this happened to me and this is how I dealt with it. And I had to take his knowledge and what I was going through and create my own plan of how to move forward. Yeah. It's all storytelling. So for me, it's sort of getting our next generation in touch with our history because our history is so rich in the spirituality that has to be passed down. Yeah. And I don't say we're religious because I don't think those are our sort of customs and that's not our knowledge, but there is similarities, like there is a uh, similarity, but it, there's an end of it yeah. where we're more spiritual. We don't, um, there's a, when I was in university, I took religious studies, and it really seemed that everywhere I went, it was like this there was a pyramid. Yeah. There was somebody at the top, a few people in the middle, and then the rest of everybody who were the followers, right? Yes. And there was always that thing where man and woman were the top. Of every of everything. They were the ones who were the earth changers. They were the ones who had to be the priority. Where in Indigenous culture, everything is a circle. It's not a pyramid. It's a circle. Yes. They're all equal. Yes. If if my life is not used to help the earth to to get better, if my life isn't used to help keep the air clean, because those are just as equal as people in our world. There's nobody better or less than another in our culture. We're, all, we're a circle. We all, it goes all around. There's nobody better. I was asked to translate one word for uh, an event that we were having. And they sent it to me and they said, could you translate this? And it was V-I-P. There is no word <laughs> for V-I-P. Because that refers that there is somebody that is very... Yes. Important. And the rest of us, not so much. Not so much. And there's nothing in our language that would even come close to a translation. This is the person who is better.
0: Yes. Yeah. That is another theme in the poet's life. I have observed the relationship to language. Most of the poets I know speak more than one language so they have this dual way or different way to relate to their own existence it's very very interesting and most of the poets I know but not only I mean not only those that I know I mean even those I read about they were also translators I'm a translator myself this is my this is my first job this is weird <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's it's, awesome. And it's beautiful. Actually, I, I love this. I love th- these conversations that I'm having with poets. They show a pattern, something that repeats itself in the life of this particular artist, uh, because the poet is an artist. It's just that is a sort of super artist. He transcends, is a creator of transcendence. Whenever there's a poet, I mean, in some place, anywhere, transcendence is available, unity, union is available all the time. And so being interested in speaking many languages is just, you know, it's just dependent of that. Because what we want is to not blow up forms, but we know that forms are just one, just many aspects of one reality. So yeah, so we're going to play with a lot of forms. And it also means playing with languages. So
1: again, a beautiful realization. (laughs) It's so beautiful. I think being a poet is just expressing the things in your heart. And for me, that's sort of the first thing I reach for. Yes. When I'm creating or writing or even making a song. Like those are the things that I reach for. Like
0: <laughs> music.
1: Yeah. I want to help people. I want yeah. people to to learn and to understand. So because I think the basis of a lot of racism is fear and a lot of fear yeah. is because they just don't know. And if they don't know, then somebody's got to teach them. Yes. I, if I go and I, I create these works that they can read and because it's a poem, if they read something they don't like, they don't have to absorb it. They don't have to take yes. it in. They can just go on to the next line. Yeah. It's a very, very gentle way to communicate who I am now if I wasn't Indigenous or if I didn't have the past that I had, my poetry would probably be something different. Like maybe it would be more based on feminism. Maybe it would be more, <laughs> based, you know, like there would always be a pause. Yeah. There would always be something that we have to fight for, that we have yeah. to challenge people on. Yeah. And the fact that This is my mountain right now that I'm climbing and I'm sharing this journey. But honestly, I think there's so many other things that are out there that still needs champions who are wordsmiths to create things that can keep promoting the conversations and keep promoting actions to change. Because our world, it seems like I remember when I was a young girl and I was at school, and they talked about racism. And they said sometimes their analogy was that if you have a group of chicks and one of these chicks ends up being a little bit different than the other chicks, that other, the other chicks will actually keep pecking that chick until they die. Okay. And they said, so racism can be like a natural thing. It's like a yeah, natural yeah, thing. No. It's a learned thing. Yeah. It's that's on the basis of fear or the unknowing or whatever personality type it is, the same thing is we give them that opportunity, that doorway to come in and learn. And as writers, it's almost like our obligation to the things that we have knowledge of that we can share. So as a poet, there are so many different things besides... Even that, I mean, I have written quite a bit about the world and what needs to change and what needs to happen to try to to get all of us on the same page to realize that we need the bees, we need clean air, we need yes. clean water, we need all these things. Yes. This is just a, wouldn't it be nice if? So yes. whatever causes is in your heart or whatever you think, and that is the beauty of poetry is you can... You can use that energy on whatever thing that you are passionate about at the time.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Once you write it down and you print it out, ten years later you might go back to it and say, This is so right. Wow. Why did I leave this? Yeah, like this needs so to right. be out again. Yeah. And that's apple pie. That's the thing that's concrete. It'll always stay there. The smell might disappear after <laughs> that, but that apple pie will still be there yeah. at it. The apple pie will it. be there. Yeah. And
0: and when you became a writer, just like you said a little uh, earlier, how did how did that happen? What happened to you, and how did you cope with uh, you know now having this intermediary
1: in your in your craft? Well, I even though I wasn't considered a writer, I actually. Yes. For the indigenous newspaper for about five years, so I okay, and I would say, you know, I heard when you were a young boy, you used to go eel fishing, and they would tell me the story, and I would write it up, and I made a newspaper, and it went all across PEI. Now I had been writing this other book that I was writing about me, and one day there was an older woman who lived in one of our first nations communities here, and. She was going to be turning 85 which meant she was our oldest indigenous person on PEI and we wanted to go and interview her and of course my boss had said we're going to get a professional journalist to come and talk to her yes she smiled and nodded and said well I don't know him so can you send Julie and and they <laughs> said hey. great and he would look at her and say Okay, could you tell me about when you used to when you grew up and you lived in a wigwam in the woods? And she would look over at me, Julie. When I was growing up, <laughs> and she wouldn't even like it was just Talk to him.
0: She yeah. acknowledged
1: his questions, and then afterwards, when we realized these amazing stories that are now going to be written down and saved for all time, yeah this woman who actually remembers living in the woods in a teepee and growing up there. Yes. I was, I was just awestruck because a our elders are like these libraries of stories. And, and when one of them passes on, you lose so much and she has passed on since, but I, we still have those stories. I still have a recording of her voice telling these stories. So after we were done interviewing her, We went outside and he said, oh my goodness, thank you so much. I don't think she would have been very comfortable talking to me about her stories. I said, yes. And I said, I've been writing a little bit myself. And he said, well, why don't you send me what you've been writing? Because you seem like a pretty cool person and you might have some great stories to share. So I went home and I tidied it up a bit. And it was probably about three quarters of the way done, this book about my life, my stories when I was little. And I sent it to him, and he phoned me up the next day and said, I'm publishing your book. ah uh-huh, great. I'm also a publisher. And I was like, yeah. gosh, really? Yeah. Next thing you know, it was a few months later, I'd finished typing it up, and it went to an editor, and it came back saying, you're a terrible speller, but I love the stories. And then, <laughs> And then it went to... The, these people that make it look pretty on the page. And I heard about things called orphans. It's like yes. writing a paragraph and you have one paragraph that ends with one word. Yes. And, um, publishing people don't like. Yeah. They don't like that. So you have to put it into the story. somehow. Oh, come on. And they said it's called an orphan and we can't have orphans in the book. So. Yeah, okay. Whatever. and Remake it. Beautiful. And then. It was published in November two thousand and nine, and then ever since then, because I think I was one of the first Indigenous writers on PEI to ever yes. be published. Yeah. All of a sudden, I was in libraries doing talks, and they yeah, what an honor. Yeah, I had uh, my my publisher and I. I had one chapter in there. Um, everybody has childhood trauma, yes. and. I, Decided as part of my therapy that I would include one chapter that would allude it wasn't even direct and it wasn't really outright yes. but did talk about a trauma that I'd had when I was a young girl mm. and because it was just me and my dad we had family live with us with an older son yes older son ended up saying, you know, come to my room and I'll show you something special. Okay. Tea. Yeah. Yeah. So I did it very gently. Yeah. Very, but because of that one chapter, the book was flagged because it it had uh, mature themes, but it wasn't written in a way that it was very visual. It just said, this is what I survived. And yeah. This is how I survived it. And this is, you know, because... That's just how you did it back then. Like you wrote about it and you didn't really talk about it. Yes. got older when you talked about it, it was like, well, that was way back when. Nowadays, I think we're way more proactive. And I know even as a mom myself, if I knew something, I would definitely be more proactive. But back in the day when it was when I was younger, be more, you survived it and look how strong you've become. Yes. yes. So that chapter got included. And we're talking about maybe republishing it without that chapter. Because originally it was going to be a specifically uh targeted for children and go into the schools and have yeah. like just the story of my life, like playing in the mud and letting it squish through your toes when you walk through a deep mud puddle, like those sort of memories that were sweet and but yeah, I added the chapter
0: <laughs> yeah. well. I don't know if you're happy with you know the the book being republished without that chapter, because I truly believe that you can talk. children are not children. Most of them, they have this you know these tiny little bodies, but the spirit within sometimes is older than us. and And I'm sure that there are ways to communicate the essence of the trauma that you have lived to children you know without this mature content and to me it it's too bad i mean it's too bad that this is not included in in the book but because eventually you became who you are i mean it is part of your story so yeah. so that's also one of the problems that poets are facing. People want us, but they don't want us. They want the relationship we have to beauty. They want the fact that we are harmony facilitators. They want that, but they don't want what causes us to become like that. This, they don't want to. (laughs) <laughs> and it's and it's so weird and, and it's so sad. And I think it depresses poets a lot. I mean, they don't get it. They said, how come? I mean, this is my poetry. This is me. This is all of me. And all of me has triggered that. It has given you that. The thing that you love. It's also part of it. The trauma is also part of it. But you don't want it. I think this is not our problem, actually. It has to cease to be our problem. It is the problem of those who don't want to confront the darkness within themselves because we all have light and dark in us. And one of the reasons I admire poets so much is that they just put everything out. I mean, everything just gets out and you deal with it, you people. <laughs> you just deal with it. It's, it's true. wonderful. Yeah. I love the attitude. It's a beautiful attitude. It's and this also um this also explains why poets are spiritual people. They're mystics to me. Um, because they are transformers of something, you know, of the, the gross, the grossest things in life into subtle forms. Yes. So yeah, and people they just don't get it. And I think that it's not that they don't get it, they're afraid of doing that. If if you don't have the the, the courage and the you know this inner spaciousness that poets have it's difficult to cope with your own trauma it's difficult to cope with the darkness within you and you you'll do anything to avoid that so i think it's not our problem and yeah we have to keep on doing what we're doing which is you know let everything out because well if you let everything out ultimately the light is going to act on it light is going to act on darkness and and well both cannot coexist at the same time right we know it yes (laughs) so your story is so inspiring i have one last question for you where can i buy your books
1: oh my goodness well i'm going to be having a new one coming out in September. Oh yeah. great! And the other one, I think right now it's pretty much just either me or my publisher and yes. it's Pro media. And my hope is that I want to get, I really see my poems as stories. So I really want to get somebody who's good at drawing or doing some artwork yes. and being able to take one poem and make it a book it can have its own life because I was thinking at first of putting all my poetry in one big volume.
0: Yes.
1: And then you could read one a day or you could just zip through it or, but honestly, I feel that these things are like wine and the more they sit on the shelf, the better they get with age. And I think they deserve their own independent life. So that is where it's retro media, and then I'm putting a book out this September with Acorn Press here in PEI. Great. And last, uh, my last book went all the way to Indigo and in Chapters.